Hey, it's Tom, and I have Allison Sproul with me today, and I figured we'd start with giving you some space for an introduction, however you want to introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, well, as he just said, my name's Allison, and I am currently leading people operations for a startup called ConnectRN. But prior to that, I was head of recruitment and HR for another startup locally called Cozykin. That was in the childcare space. And prior to that, had done quite a bit of work in the recruitment field for various ed tech companies locally, including Cengage and EF Education First. So definitely someone who's very mission-driven. And I got my start with people ops actually overseas in China. So that's a little How bit did about that me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, it goes back to my time in college where... I went to Florida State. Go Knowles. Sorry for any Gator fans out there. I'll try not <laughs> nice. to gag. Um, but ultimately, I had studied Italian and business as my major, but minored in Mandarin, thinking that as beautiful as the Italian language is, being able to financially support myself as an interpreter of the Italian language um, wasn't exactly going to be incredibly feasible. So I... Although I minored in it, my Mandarin wasn't particularly strong at the time after studying abroad in Italy and then taking another semester to really focus on my business coursework. So I had taken an entire year off. And when I got back into it, I'd forgotten a ton of the basics and went into advanced business Chinese. And I remember thinking, oh, man, how am I ever going to <laughs> be a successful interpreter if I can't actually remember the languages that I'm supposed to be you know, interpreting? And my tutor at the time had recommended that I go the immersion route, which I found to be very helpful for Italian when I studied abroad there. So I said, all right, great. I got to move to China. How in the world am I going to pay off my student loans? And the answer to that question was teaching English. So I started out with EF Education First in Beijing as a teacher. And then after a year of teaching, I applied for their international recruiter role and got it. So I moved to their Shanghai headquarter office and then later moved with them to Boston, which is where their North American headquarters is. What a cool trip that is. Yeah. <laughs> where did you, um, are you from Florida? I am from Florida. Got it. So Florida to China to Boston. Yep. People always say when they hear that I'm from Florida, they're like, oh, well, why'd you come up here? I'm like, well, technically, this is a lot closer than Shanghai. So, yeah, Florida uh, via China. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, I've been doing so. I just watched the interview you did on Drafted. Um, I found you on YouTube for that one. And then uh, I did a quick pass through some of the things that you seem to engage with on LinkedIn. And one thing that I thought might be an inter interesting place to start was talking about people operations versus HR. Like what's sure. the difference? Yeah. Um, so I would say that, and this is from my own personal mindset, not necessarily something that's uh, written, I guess you could say. My viewpoint of HR versus people ops is that people operations is much more strategic. Um, people operations is really a function that's looking to coach 
both hiring managers as well as existing people managers within the organization and partner with them to further their team's development and growth, as well as making sure that they're engaged. So that's everything from making sure that new managers have the resources that they need to feel supported and ready to, you know, give feedback for the first time. Or it could be even sitting down with your CEO and thinking strategically about how you're going to structure the organization. Is your marketing function going to funnel up to a head of sales? Are you going to have the budget in the coming year to hire a head of marketing? So that way um, you don't have to combine those growth functions. Are you going to have a general manager structure that's based out of another city acting kind of as a mini CEO overseeing that entire office? Or if someone is sitting out of another office and let's say they're in the sales team, but your head of sales is based in Boston, does that person ultimately funnel up to the GM or do they funnel up to that head of sales? So thinking through some of these more complex problems, I see as more of a people side, whereas HR, I view as more reactive. So I also view HR as the more traditional functions of benefits administration and payroll and inputting new hires into whichever HRIS system to make sure that all of the compliance piece is there and they're knowledgeable about the employment law. I see people operations as more of a coaching function and HR as more of a processing function, if that makes sense. It does. Um, you use some really uh, meaty words when you talked about people ops. So you said coach, you said a partner, you said develop and grow and to pay attention to engagement. Um, just to start to like maybe chase down some of those things. Can we talk about coaching? Sure. First, like how do you think about coaching in your day to day? And like, um, I'm really interested in your personal philosophy and, and how you've built that over your various roles. Yeah. So ultimately, in terms of coaching, and I've had to do this for both newer managers as well as executives, um, I think it comes down to first having a listening ear to understand what the manager or executive's initial game plan may be, and then thinking strategically with them about the repercussions that they might have from that um, and always operating under the assumption to predict the unpredictable, of course. So if you think that rolling out a new comp structure to the sales team is going to cause half of them to quit, then how can we structure the communication? Or maybe do we even want to opt for that style of comp structure? Because how are we going to be a sustainable company without a sales team, for example? Um, I think that with newer managers, especially for smaller teams, it can be hard to prioritize that management training, but it's so, 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 so essential to the entire company to give them that support and development, both as managers 
so that way, and for their um, direct reports, so that way the entire business can flourish. Because if you've got, you know, one marketing specialist on your team without any real support from above, maybe you don't have a head of marketing yet, um, and then the manager above is someone who wrote really great content, but doesn't know anything about SEO. And this marketing specialist is meant to be, you know, optimizing all of that. You're going to run into some trouble when they don't have anyone to look to as an internal resource. So how can we help reskill and upskill these existing managers to help coach their direct reports through it? And then also in tandem with the executive team, make sure that they're thinking about that middle layer of management as well and not just kind of setting it and forgetting it like, okay, well, I just promoted this manager. So now I don't have to deal with that, you know, entry level marketing specialist. No, you still do because if you're not supporting your middle level managers, it's going to be a pretty big recipe for disaster. Can we uh, go like a layer deeper on new managers? That's um, it's really interesting to me. When you say new managers, are you talking new managers to that specific organization or somebody that's never managed? I'm referring to someone who's never managed before. And so, so how do you coach them and develop them and like as specific as you want to get on like tools or courses that you get enrolled in? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of really great management training companies as well as individuals. Um, I think that some of the larger topics that tend to come up when thinking about supporting new managers is goal setting. So maybe they've had to think about goals for themselves before, but they haven't walked a team through how to set OKRs and thinking about from a top-down structure, like, okay, if my executive team says for the year, our company has these five OKRs, how can I personally fit into that? And then how can I take that a little deeper and say, how are my direct reports ultimately funneling up? Um, with those key results to those greater objectives and breaking it down to say, okay, so if I need to see this key result from Allison, but we still won't hit the objective without Jack's key result, I need to make sure that I'm assigning and working with my direct reports to be able to facilitate the bigger picture. Um, So in addition to goal setting, I would say that new managers oftentimes look out for more guidance on providing feedback. So they might be prone to providing a certain type of feedback that's not necessarily uh, conducive to that direct report's growth and development because you can be positive as all get out, but not constructive. And that doesn't really tell them how they can improve. And then secondarily, if you're extremely negative, but provide a lot of criticism, the direct report might not be incredibly uh, pumped to apply that feedback. So finding that happy medium of encouragement while still being very clear and explicit about what you need to see done is something that's a bit more nuanced um, that I've heard new managers wanting uh, further coaching on. I would say those are some of the larger areas, um, but also can go into um, 
being both an individual contributor and a manager at the same time. Some people find that they're not necessarily great at the balancing act of doing both of those things. So uh, Cozykin, I was both a first-time manager and an executive and stepping into HR for the first time since my background is largely in talent acquisition. That was a crazy change. Um, Thankfully, I do think that I was able to adapt to that challenge pretty well. Um, My direct reports seemed to think so. They all had positive things to say about my management style. Um, But then subsequently now at ConnectRN, I'm having to do all of these things without a team. So making that shift back to, okay, I'm internally still considered to be in a manager level cohort, but right now I don't have any direct reports to worry about. I do still have the same volume of work since the role is very um, similar in terms of the scope, uh, both my previous employer and my current one. But thinking about how to juggle six one-on-ones each week on top of making sure that we have all of our PFMLA signatures collected and making sure that I am making that analytics higher and making sure that I did put together that dashboard for our high volume recruitment team to be able to share that with the rest of the executive team to know where we're at. Um, it's, it's not something that everyone has the capabilities to do. Yeah. Could you share, um, some lessons from that Cozykin experience if somebody were to find themselves as a first-time manager and a first-time executive responsible for, I'd have a hard time repeating back for all, all the things that you had to do between one-on-ones and building dashboards. Like, can you share some lessons on from the front lines? You know, you did it and you had to do it. So, if somebody else came to you and said, I'm feeling pretty overwhelmed, I just got hired to do X, Y, and Z, how would you coach me through that? Well, I'm not going to lie, Tom. I don't have any real secret sauce to my success. A lot of it was trial and error. I'm not going to lie. One thing that was extremely helpful to me was my network. So I really relied heavily on other local leaders experiences and was able to draw from them. So there are a few different communities um, for people ops pros in Boston and worldwide. I am currently going through a program called Grow through a company called Hacking HR that's international that's meant to develop the next generation of chief people officers. So I haven't started that program yet. I believe it kicks off in two weeks. So in terms of a resourcefulness perspective, that's the jury's still out on it since I haven't started it yet, but I'm pretty pumped about that since some really um, awesome people leaders like the chief people officer from Ceridian's in there, the chief people officer from Flywire will be helping to mentor too. So I can't imagine that it'll be a bad experience either way to get that exposure to some really phenomenal leaders. Um, But I have found too that so, so often people will forget about peer mentorship. So I'm 
a huge, huge fan of Jen Paxton, who's the VP of People and Talent over at Privy, um, have kind of looked to her as an official slash unofficial mentor for the past couple years. So I've gone to her to ask her, like, hmm, what did you do in this situation? Um, and a number of other folks, too. We've got a breakfast that we attend once a month to kind of talk shop and see, hmm, so this past month was about candidate experience. What are we doing to really provide that white glove experience to candidates coming through the pipeline and talking about, okay, from a startup perspective right now, we're all operating on pretty lean people teams. When is the time to make that first recruiter hire? When did it make sense for some of the larger companies in that group? Um, so like, for example, Carrie Waleka from Breakcove, being a massive international company, was able to share um, perspective um, from that larger company standpoint that she's seen over the years with them. So it's nice to, to have that network of people who are willing to share what was successful for them. And that might not be what the best thing is going to be for your organization. But if you get enough opinions, you can see what could work. Or, you know, maybe you try something entirely new, but you've got context to say like, hey, well, I thought of X idea and my friend so-and-so tried it and it miserably failed for them. So maybe I won't make that same mistake, yeah. right? Um, I think I can't speak enough to both mentors and peers in the space to really figure things out. But I do also think to go into a very strategic executive level uh, role and go from essentially zero to hero very quickly that, and forgive my language, you can't just sit on your ass and expect to know everything on day one, right? Absolutely. Think about it from the perspective of the CEO. If you're going to actually be a true partner to him or her, start to read. There are so many great resources out there, whether it be the High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill or The Hard Thing About Hard Things. There are tons and tons of resources when you can hear about how startups have gone through just these ridiculous challenges and been able to pull through and learn from their lessons and be able to apply them or, you know, avoid those missteps internally. I think that if you're just going to rely on your past experiences, you're not really going to be able to grow and support the way that you need to. You need to upskill yourself, find out what others are doing, whether it be peers and other people ops teams or Maybe you're even talking to other executive leaders internally. So I was very, very grateful to have strong relationships with, um, at Cozykin at least, with our head of growth, as well as our head of ops, both oddly enough named Matt and our head of engineering, also named Matt. We were a big fan of Matt's. Um, but I mean, one important lesson for me when I was thinking about leadership from an executive perspective Matt from Growth, I will specify Matt Handy, <laughs> he noticed one time that I was on some type of HR tech demo and I said, oh, well, my team does XYZ. My team, you know, probably would not use that feature. My team, my team. He was like, how do you think that your team feels when you're saying my team as opposed to our team? And it just hadn't even occurred to me to have that level of perspective, I was like, that 
totally makes sense. Like this is not the Allison show and I, Lord knows I don't want it to be. Um, but it's not even something that had crossed my mind at that point. So I was very, very grateful to get that peer to peer feedback from someone who, you know, probably isn't the end all be all people operations leader, but still a very strong and intelligent executive presence that was able to help develop me um, from my promotion time through to executive. I've got uh, two places I want to go. So I'd like to, after this small uh, sidestep transition into some of the candidate hiring, recruiting stuff, but sure. Um, so like that piece of feedback that you received and you mentioned feedback being really important to new managers, is there a method that you subscribe to when it comes to giving and receiving feedback or something that you've developed personally? I don't know that I've developed anything personally. Um, I think that when looking at the format of giving feedback, typically I'll recommend to managers to kind of do the compliment sandwich. <laughs> so <laughs> with the bread being the positives. So, hey, Sarah, I think that you've really been hitting the phones hard lately and that's been super noticeable. Thanks for your hard work on that. But maybe the tone on those calls hasn't exactly been the most empathetic. And so, as you know, in a customer service built business and organization, we really need to act as true servants to our customers and find the most optimal way to reach them. Um, so if you could be more conscious of that tone and asking, you know, at the end of the call, is there anything else I could help you with or something like that? I think that would really help elevate you and take you to the next level from specialist to manager, for example. And ultimately, I do see here as well that you've been really great about the call length here. So keep up the great work in terms of the volume and the length. Just try to be a little bit more cognizant about some of that um, tone when speaking directly to the customers. So I might kind of layer it in that sort of function, for example, mm -hmm. with our customer success team right now at ConnectRN. <laughs> I had to give some of that feedback very, very recently. Um, I do think also it's important to be very honest. So with um, the director of people at Lola.com, Emma Brudner, and also VP people from Privy, Jen Paxton, we had done this session recently with people from our organizations on how to give feedback and sometimes how it might be uncomfortable feedback, like telling one of your direct reports that maybe there's a certain scent coming off of them each day that isn't exactly the most desirable for an office environment, <laughs> you know, and being able to have those tough conversations, like in that format, you're probably not going to do a compliment sandwich, <laughs> you know, you're probably just going to want to get pretty directly to the point. If someone has spinach in their teeth, you never want to be that person with spinach in your teeth. You just want someone to freaking tell you, right? <laughs> so yeah. same thing in a lot of those situations. It's important to be very clear and upfront, but also coming from that place of empathy to say like, hey, I've totally been in this situation too. I just wanted to let you know X, Y, Z because I would want to know if I were in your shoes. And 
laying it out from that perspective of um, thinking how you might feel on the receiving end of that feedback, I think really helps to guide those new managers in providing that feedback. That's great. Thank you. Um, let's try to make our hard transition into recruiting, hiring. Um, I don't sure. know what the best order is for that. Like maybe does it start with, I got the way that I think about recruiting just because it's the way that my brain works is sort of like a sales process and you can almost look at it like a funnel, like in sales, like you have totally. the top of the funnel is every candidate that exists. And at the bottom of the funnel, you have new hires. So I don't know if that framework is helpful, but why don't yeah. you lead on where you want to go with recruiting and hiring? Sure. And from the perspective of thinking about sales, like recruiting, I'm totally there with you. I started my career as in door-to-door sales. So I'm thinking about the same type of funnel. You were banging um, on doors? I was. What were you selling? <laughs> Educational books and software. So my time with ed tech goes way back. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Shout out to Dyersburg, Tennessee, my first sales territory. <laughs> cool. Sorry for the sidetrack, but you don't no worries. run into people that actually banged on doors that frequently. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty sure that's like a big portion of the reason why I got hired at both startups that I've been at. They're like, oh, if this girl can go door to door and get that level of rejection. She can deal with a startup. So I'm <laughs> like, yeah, I can. <laughs> yep. Um. So, sorry, I forget what the original question was. I no, just we were re- about like recruiting and hiring, however you want to um, start, how you think about it. Sure. I mean, in terms of walking through a recruitment process when I'm adding any sort of headcount, the very first thing that I want to do is make sure that I'm connecting with my CEO and CFO to make sure that we have appropriate budget for this role before we go down the rabbit hole of getting a hiring manager super pumped about getting this added um, seat. And (laughs) I have unfortunately had to deal with that before where you start to recruit on something and it's like, oh, well, we actually don't have the funding for that. So that's a very critical step one. Then I do want to, of course, sit down with the hiring manager to determine what core competencies that they're looking for versus hard requirements for experience or skills. I do think that in the majority of cases, if people have a certain skill set and aptitude that you can learn pretty much anything if you have a manager that's willing to teach. So part of that uh, intake meeting is me making a determination of, hmm, is this manager actually willing to teach someone, you know, this new programming language, for example, or do we really need someone who's coming in and able to hit the ground running without much handholding? And so that's a, a very important distinction I have found before setting out to go and start sourcing. So you start with, do we have the money to pay this potential person? And then is that interim step like doing what's necessary to build a job description, like to be able to share with somebody, this is what we're looking for. 
Yeah. So once I have the approval for the headcount financially, then in the intake meeting, we'll start to sit down and work out, okay, what are the responsibilities for this person? What are the hard requirements for this person? What does that day-to-day look like? What does the hiring process look like? So for example, with an engineer, maybe you have a recruiter phone screen, but then the next step is some type of technical screen by someone in the engineering department, right? So I could probably learn how to do it eventually, but it's going to be a lot slower process if you trust me to do a technical screen. Um, So then from there, going into your final interview, or maybe you want to have this person do an interview with some of the team members before coming on site for a final interview with your head of engineering, what have you. It really just varies in terms of hiring managers' personal preference. But ultimately, in this candidate market, I don't even know what the unemployment rate is at this point, but still significantly low. Uh, You need to be able to move fast. So you could, in theory, add more steps in that hiring process for what the hiring manager is looking for. Or you might want to use that intake meeting as the recruiter to say, hey, this market's an absolute shit show right now. If we don't like shorten this from a four-part interview down to a two-part, we could be losing candidates, right? And making sure that you're getting people in the door in a pretty quick turnaround time because likelihood of them having another offer. And this isn't even just limited to engineering. We've had this case with nurses at ConnectRN and nannies at Cozykin. These hourly workers can get other jobs like that too. Talent is so stretched across all industries, all industries. So I think it's foolish to have an incredibly long hiring process at this point, but some people really prefer that and it works for them. How do you... um... How much do you get to shape the process? Do you show up at a place and they have, you know, preconceived this is how we do it? Or do you get to show up and say, this is like, do you get to bring it with you? I guess like if you've developed a system that works well, I'm just trying to figure out if it's, if it's really individualized by company or if it's more dependent on the people that are there. Yeah. So, I've worked with companies as large as 40,000 people and as few as 25 people. So previously, when working at those really major companies like EF, they had a very solid hiring process already in place. The company's over 50 years old. And I was also a newer recruiter. So I wasn't going to knock something that was like working, right? Sure. Why try to fix something that's not broken? So... From there, yeah, it was a pretty set hiring process for the division that I recruited for. They were a little bit more experimental, I think, with the candidates in North America. But I do also know that subsequently, their teams internationally have gotten together to really work on standardizing those processes. So maybe they're a little less experimental now, or if they are deciding to be experimental, they're doing it across the world instead of just out of one office. So. Mm-hmm whether it's video interviewing or group interviewing. Um, I know that they were looking for a while at doing recordings of people responding to prompts and then seeing if it was worth a phone screen from there, for example. So I think that 
they were a large scale experimental, but in my division of the company, it was very set in stone to where I don't think I really had much influence. I do think that at Cengage, being around 5,000 employees when I was there, there wasn't a ton of flexibility, but there was definitely more room for pushback there. And ultimately, I think that with the structure and teaming and for the recruiting that I was doing, I think I had more flexibility to kind of run the process that I wanted in tandem with the manager. So if the manager wanted a three-part interview, then we would make that happen. If they wanted a two-part interview, then we could make that happen and kind of go from there. Now, Cozykin, uh, our CEO and head of product had already put in place what their desired format was, at least for the phone screen and subsequent final interviews and process and reference check. I do believe that I did put a certain level of spin on it, but they had read enough books to where they felt that their structure was a really good one. And now at ConnectRN, once again, being very early stage, there was literally no process. So I've just developed that one from the ground up. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it's not that complex. We just do a phone screen and a final interview because we don't have time to dilly-dally in this market. And thankfully, the executive team agrees with me. So when we do a phone screen, I'll conduct it and... There have been a handful of engineers where we've actually had our CTO do the phone screen instead of me. So that way we don't need to add in an extra technical screen. Um, but it's been working pretty well for us so far. Haven't had, um, haven't had a rejected offer yet. So, nice. Yeah. Um, how do you balance going fast and doing it well? Yeah. Um, ultimately... In terms of my training and experience, I default on behavioral interviewing. So the theory behind behavioral interviewing is that past behavior predicts future behavior. And I've seen time and time and time and time again that if you ignore flags of certain lacking competencies, you will for sure see that come up in their work. So If you have someone, for example, in an interview that isn't necessarily following the instructions that you as the interviewer have laid out, maybe that means that they won't really follow their manager's instructions when they come on board. Or if they give you an example about a time when they justified feedback given to them from a boss, then they're probably still going to be sour when they get feedback from their boss at your company too. Or if they throw their prior company under the bus during an interview, strong likelihood if they come to work for you, they're going to throw you under the bus when they go into their next hiring process too. So you don't want to be the next in the line of fire there. And so making sure that you're taking appropriate notes of both the wording and the social cues is extremely important and then reporting them back to interviewers or hiring managers that might not necessarily have that trained eye to look for that sort of behavior. 
Is it putting you on the spot too much to ask for any favorite interview questions? No, not at all. Um, I think that when I'm looking for someone who I feel is going to be a really strong hire, particularly in a startup, there are a few core competencies that I'm ultimately looking for. First one being managing performance. That's ultimately, are they going to be a pain in the ass to manage? And can they not only take feedback, but implement it? Two totally different things. Can't tell you about the amount of times I've had someone say like, oh yeah, so my boss told me to do this and I did it, but I thought my way was better. Like, okay, then you're probably going to think that here too. And maybe you're overly cocky about this and maybe you won't end up always applying that feedback. Um, I also am always looking for someone who's a team player and looking to foster that relationship. If I'm asking to inquire further about teamwork, I'll have them tell me about a time when they didn't see eye to eye with a peer. Make sure you get a peer example. If they try to tell you about a manager or someone that they were managing, not going to work. So I make it very, very explicit to say, tell me about a time you didn't see eye to eye with someone at the same level as you. What was the situation and what did you do? You want to make sure that you don't use leading language. Like, tell me how you resolved this conflict. Because nine times out of 10, they'll tell you about a conflict that they didn't resolve. And then, hmm, okay, if they couldn't solve this simple problem with a coworker, are they going to get into more conflicts here with peers? How are they going to manage it with us? Probably not well if they couldn't resolve it internally. Then it's going to come back to me in HR, right? I don't want to deal with your problems. You should be able to be an adult and manage it on your own. So that's a really key one for me. Um, Then I'm also looking for entrepreneurial orientation, which is so, so critical to startups. If you're going to have somebody who can't tell you about a creative problem that they solved or some type of difficult customer situation that they were able to resolve, are they really going to be, you know, empathetic enough to be able to relate and work with these customers? Are they going to be able to come up with new ideas when you're going through sprints? Or are they just going to be the person there who's just processing? You want to try and identify people that will upskill your existing team or fill a gap in the puzzle that is your team that you don't already have. So if they can't, Tell me about even a time during school. It doesn't matter if it's at work, in school, if they haven't had to think about a problem truly creatively and critically, it makes me question how well they would function in a startup environment where it's you're trying to solve a certain problem together as a company. That's your mission. And in most cases, startups don't have a ton of money to just hire people who are processors. They need people who are doers, who are thinkers, who will help up-level their game. And so that's another thing that I really try to filter for. I love that. Um, Also a certain level of coping strategies, I would say, since I think startups are pretty work hard, play hard. So if they're... um, How do you dig into that in an interview? Yeah. So ultimately a question that... I used to ask, I haven't necessarily incorporated it too much at Connect RN just yet because 
I do feel like the work-life balance at Connect Heart is way better than in previous companies, but I would ask them to tell me about a time when they felt stressed by a situation at work. What was the situation and what did they do? Once again, making sure that you're not leading them by saying like, how did you uh, like resolve this stressful situation or how did you cope? Um, because maybe they didn't. But these are times when people might say, oh, well, I stepped outside and I chain smoked a pack of cigarettes, which at Cozykin was a huge flag being in the childcare industry because we had a zero smoking policy. Mm -hmm. um, and if people share unhealthy coping mechanisms with you, that might not be the best because they might carry that into your company. But if they say something along the lines of, I like to go for a run after work to kind of blow off some steam, or maybe I take a boxing class or I scream into a pillow. These are okay things, but you want to make sure that they have some sort of healthy coping mechanism that won't funnel into work. Got it. Um, I was thinking about, so it's 1050 and okay. in selecting in, in me trying to prioritize like what I have left on my list, I think it would be really interesting sort of selfishly to think about a really early company, um, you know, three or five people that are sitting in a co-working space. Like how would you coach somebody like that to be intentional about, you know, building a great place to work? Yeah. I mean, I, founder will tell you that their first few hires are always going to be the most critical because those are the people who are really going to form the initial culture that you have and then go to scale that culture. So I personally haven't been at a scale that is less than 25 people. I do encourage founders to think very early on what they want that culture to look like. So even if it is just you and your co-founders at this point, taking the time to be thoughtful about, you know, what are our core values? What's going to see us from three people to a hundred? And the more that you go to change those core values, it can be tumultuous on your team to think about how they can fit in it with the organization if maybe they don't agree with the new core values set in place. I think that one thing that my co-founders at Cozykin did really, really well was put together a set of core values that we could all rally behind, whether we were just 20 people versus 200 people, which we did scale to in under a year. So that was insane itself. But both our internal corporate team and our nannies all really aligned with this. And so they were courage in action, which is essentially bravery to say and do the right thing, even when it's hard. Mm -hmm. It was having a heart for children. I would hope that you would love kids at a childcare company. And thirdly was, oh, so courage in action. I'm, Oh my gosh. The third one was Accelerate Together. <laughs> and that one was essentially not just teamwork, 
but also not being afraid to be that person to step up and lead the group, even if you aren't officially a leader. And Mm -hmm. so that was something that really helped to propel us. And even when we were going through really, really tough times, such as the layoffs that after hiring all those people, we subsequently had to go through, um, we we still very much are incredibly close and operate more like a family than a bunch of ex coworkers. So it's it's funny because we'll be like, oh, you know, what a heart for children. We just had so and so's um, brother become a father for the first time, and let's send that person flowers or. Hey, let's work together to get a group of new managers going, for example, um, with some training. So that training that I mentioned earlier with um, Emma from Lola.com and Jen from Privy had former Cozykin people there because we wanted to make sure that they could continue to develop as managers. And so even accelerating together outside of the organization or continuing to work together and help each other as professionals, even after the company is together. I think it's very, very telling that we all had been so ingrained in that culture and those core values that we still live every day, even though we don't work together anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, In the last couple minutes here, I want, wanted to save some room in case there's anything that you want to hit that I didn't bring up. Yeah. Um, I mean, nothing's immediately springing to mind, I guess. How did, I'm going to flip the script here. Oh boy. How did you get into these podcasts? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It started, I'm a huge podcast consumer. Um, I listened to hours every week of different podcasts kind of all over the map on what the subject matter is. So I've, I've been interested in it for a long time since it started becoming popular and uh, thought it would be interesting to try it myself. I guess I'm just sort of following curiosity here. And I think um, it sort of got sparked, like trying to have conversations with people operations folks um, started with Maureen from Eversound. Uh, her and I had a bunch of conversations and she's been really helpful. And then we recorded one and, uh, it was received really well. And, you know, we had people reach out asking to be connected to Maureen because they're going through similar things. And I just thought that, you know, how about some more people ops folks? That was a really fun chat. Um, and like selfishly there is, you know, we are three people today. We just started about a year ago. And um, some of the lessons that are in your brain about hiring and recruiting and finding people and the candidate experience, which you mentioned, like, if I can learn about a lot of that stuff before, you know, without a gun to my head, like at a more casual pace, I, I yeah. feel like that will be helpful. So very cool. Yeah. Um Kind of goes back that to that peer to peer mentorship, doesn't it? Yeah, and and I think that <laughs> it seems like um, the people ops Boston network is really strong. It seems it really like is. there's a there's a really strong sense of community there that um, I think is so valuable, especially 
in your experience, that was your answer pretty much to, so you show up at a place for your first time manager and a first time executive and you know, what the hell do you do? And you immediately went to, I go find people that have done this before, um, which I think is, is just a great lesson in general. Yeah. I mean, both internally and externally, I was chatting with another people ops professional locally who was saying she was really struggling with her boss being on the West Coast with her being based in Boston. And I said, okay, well, sometimes you can get mentorship from people who you wouldn't necessarily expect it. So if you're thinking about who's internally at your office, I said, you know, what executive level leaders are there? And she said, there's a VP of customer success and our chief marketing officer. And I said to her, okay, so you're in people ops. Would you say that a lot of your focus is employee experience? She said, yeah, probably about 90%. I said, okay, well, who else thinks about experience internally? Probably your VP of customer success thinks a lot about customer experience. And are these employees not your internal customers? And she said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, well, I think you just easily found a mentor for you right there in the Boston office. She's like, oh, I didn't even think about it that way. So I think that you should always be looking, you know, around and a simple ask of someone to grab a quick coffee. Like, I don't think I've ever had anybody say hard pass, right? If you're coming at it from a, a friendly place. Sure. Um. Well, let's wrap it up. That was really fun. And uh, I will, uh, I'll follow up with, if you want to listen to this before I publish it, great. Um, Otherwise, I, there's so much there and I've got pages of notes and uh, I thought that was really fun. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Tom. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye.